Good morning, Church of Omaha. If uh, we could all gather in and find our seats. If everyone wants to turn their Bible to the book of Luke, the first chapter, don't need to stand because I'm going to be reading quite a few passages here in a little bit. But just so you know where we're going to be going, we'll be in Luke chapter 1. Now, in December, on the Wednesday nights, I'll be teaching out of the book of Luke. So I wasn't originally going to do this message today because it's the whole first chapter of Luke. But every, every time I was trying to write a message, I kept coming back to the same thought over and over and over again. So I finally yielded and said, if God wants me to preach this, then this is what I'm going to preach this morning. So this morning, my title is simply this, Purpose of the Promise. Purpose of the Promise. In the Old Testament, there is a, there's a lot of miracles mentioned throughout the Old Testament, actually. But there's one particular miracle that, that happens quite frequently in the Old Testament. And when it happens, it's heralded almost always by an angel appearing to the person and telling them that this is going to take place. And as I was kind of thinking about this in context of what we're going to read here in a little bit in chapter 1 of Luke, I began to ask myself, why? Why is this particular miracle something that happens quite often and then it's also always heralded by an angel? See, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and the wife of Manoah, they all have something in common. All of these Old Testament women were at a point in their lives where they were barren. They had no children. Now, whether it was due to old age, whether it was due to a medical condition, um, these women found themselves in a really unenviable position. The act of God giving children to the barren is one of the most important miracles that is repeated over and over throughout several generations. And even in the New Testament, the question is why? Why is this such a big deal? Now, from a purely logical perspective, having children during this time frame was important as they lived in an agrarian society, meaning that how they made their money, how they made their living was by farming the land, by growing crops, by uh, raising cattle. And it makes sense that many hands makes light work. So many times these families would grow large because that's, that's how they supported their family. They had all these children and it was a, a family effort to run, if you will, the family business. Um, beyond that, Beyond just that, though, children were considered a blessing. They were a promise from God. And if you were unable to have children, it was somewhat of a, you were looked at in some regards as a social outcast. Um, a lot of women who, who couldn't have children felt shame. They felt, some of them felt guilty, like, why, why is it that I, I can't have children? Children were an important social status, as it meant that the family lineage would be continued. Children were so important that when a woman couldn't have children, she was looked on with shame. So for God to personally intervene in these situations was something so astounding that when Sarah was told that she was going to have a child in her old age, she laughed at God. She didn't believe it. She thought, there's no way. You imagine how, how she must have felt, and now she's being told this by God, and so she laughed at God. But again, why was blessing these barren women so important that God would send an angel to announce that this was going to happen? You see, while God certainly cares for his people and he loves his people, he is not affected if the coal lineage were to stop today. 
God is not affected or, or in any way impacted personally if a, a lineage of a particular individual were to stop. God doesn't care about social approval. God doesn't care if, if uh, the society looks at a person without children a certain way. That does not affect God individually. Likewise, God doesn't need a family to have many hands in order to provide for them. God is a miracle-working God. He can do it with little to nothing. So then what is the purpose of the promise? I think a great way to illustrate the answer to this question is found in the first chapter of Luke. But before we jump into Luke, let me just give you a little context that hopefully will bring this to life a little more. Luke was a physician who set out to gather evidence concerning the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Luke did not experience Jesus' miracles firsthand. But don't let that sway you from Luke's account. While Luke may have not walked with Jesus directly, he did know most of his disciples personally. Luke talked personally with Peter, with Matthew. He spent time with Paul. Interestingly, the account of Jesus' birth is so detailed in this particular book that many theologians believe that Luke likely talked directly to Mary to get her side of the story when he wrote his account here. Finally, Luke was a doctor, and given his medical training, for him to write of the virgin birth of Jesus meant that he truly had to believe it because as a trained physician, he would have known that that's not physically or humanly possible without the intervention of God. So for Luke to write this, he must have truly believed it. And of course, we can't take away the fact that Luke, like the other writers, was inspired by God himself, by the Spirit of God. And ultimately, that's the, the string that, if you will, binds everything together. So now let's pick up in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. And we're going to read through pretty much this whole chapter. And what I'm going to do, as I, as I normally do, is we're going to stop part of the way through these passages, kind of explain what's going on here. So verse 5 says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah, of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now notice verse 6. I want you to really notice what it says here. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Verse 7, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, verse 9, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Pause right there for just a moment. Let me explain to you what's happening. First, the, Zechariah's wife is barren. But we know already from this passage, it was, she wasn't barren because of something she did or that she was a bad person or anything of that nature. The Bible calls them both righteous, says they both followed after God's commands. Now, both uh, Zechariah, or Zechariah and his wife were of the lineage of Aaron, which made them candidates, made him a candidate for the priesthood. What was common is for a priest who wasn't always acting as a priest, meaning that that wasn't their full-time job, they would be called on, sometimes only once in their life, but they would be called on at a certain point to go to the temple and to perform a certain task. In this particular case, Zechariah was called to go in and burn incense before the Lord. What would happen is, is the, the priest who was chosen would go into this room alone, offer a sacrifice of incense, 
while the rest of the priests would stand outside of the room worshiping God. So that's where we find ourselves right now. So let's pick back up. Um, let's see, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Verse 11, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias. Pause right there. I always have to think, this must be like an inside joke with the angels at this point. Because if you ever notice throughout all of Scripture when an angel appears to someone, they pretty much always have to say, fear not, because the people are afraid. So in my mind, this has to be like a running joke with the angels. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. You're afraid. Everybody's always afraid when I show up. Fear not. But then notice what he says here. He says, for thy prayer is heard. Well, what prayer? We know what the prayer is. He must have been praying for a child because the answer is, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And thou shalt call his name John. So here we have an answer to prayer, a promise from God to bless Zechariah with a child. Verse 14, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit of power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." This is incredibly important because what just happened here is Zechariah had been praying and praying and praying for the blessing of a child. Now God is going to answer him by sending an angel to tell him that his prayer is heard and he is now given the promise that he is going to have a child. But not only would he have a child, this child would also fall in the lineage of the priesthood. But John would not be like any other priest. John was one who was set to prepare the way for the Lord. But what does that really even mean? Just think about that preparing the way of the Lord. We're going to come back to that phrase toward the end of this message. But I want you just to remember that preparing the way of the Lord. Now we pick back up in verse 18. It says, And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. So here John had been praying, or Zechariah had been praying and praying for a son. God sends an angel, tells him, I've heard your prayer, I'm going to answer your prayer, but how does Zechariah respond? in doubt and disbelief. That's what the angel says. Because of your unbelief, I will now make you dumb. But here's the thing. When God gives you a promise, it will come to pass. But how you respond to the promise will determine the road you take to get to the promise. You see, Sarah laughed at God when she received the promise and ended up convincing Abraham to sleep with her, with her handmaiden which then brought on a whole set of troubles that has lasted ever since. Here we find that Zechariah responded in disbelief to the angel speaking the promise to him. And so what happens is his mouth is shut, and he's unable to speak until it comes to pass. 
Here we see that Zechariah's lack of faith caused his mouth to be shut. So the question is, how will you respond to God's promise? Will God have to silence you so that your doubt won't infect others? Or will you receive the promise with gladness? But know this, either way, the promise will come to pass. We pick back up in verse 21, and it says, And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me, to take away my reproach among men. Now, it was customary that when a woman was trying to conceive or trying to get pregnant or when she first thought that she might be pregnant, she would hide herself away from all other men. That she would remove herself from ever being in the presence of another man other than her direct immediate family and her spouse. This was done to avoid even the possibility of doubt that the son belonged to the husband. Why, you might ask? During that time, of course, there were no DNA testing, no way to, to test the child to know that it was the son of, of the, the husband. And being the firstborn son was a huge deal. In fact, there were even special laws that were made that said the firstborn son could often inherit everything. Everything that the, the father and mother had could be given to the firstborn legitimate son. So this hiding away was done to remove any doubt of legitimacy, remove any doubt that this was the father's son. Now we pick back up in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said, Can you guess? Fear not. Fear not. Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Verse 34, the Mary said, Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I want to pause right there for a moment and let you know that God knows the heart of his people. Because you see, Zechariah was called a righteous man. He was called a man who kept, after, kept God's commandments. But he asked the exact same question that Mary asked. He asked, how can this be? My wife is old, well stricken in age. Mary asked the exact same question. How can this be, seeing I'm, that I know not a man? But God knows the heart of the person asking the question. Sometimes we look on someone when they're praying and they're crying out to God and they're asking a question. And in our human minds, we may say, oh, they must not have faith. They must not believe. But the truth is, is that it is okay to ask God why. It's okay, okay to question God. As long as it is always backed with a heart that has faith and belief that God ultimately knows what he is doing. 
that at the end of the day, though I don't understand this, though I don't understand how God is going to make this happen, I have to believe that God is in control and he will make it come to pass. So this was Mary's response. Though she uttered almost the same words that Zechariah did, God knew her heart. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now often when we read this passage here, because it's almost Christmas time, and we're, most people, most families are going to read Luke 1 and 2. It's, it's kind of a tradition here. Most of the time when we read this passage, we think of Mary as this um, young, probably late teenage years girl who out of the blue gets spoken to by an angel, told that she's going to have a, have a baby, though she didn't know a man. That alone is kind of crazy by itself. But that she's going to have the Messiah. We read this, and in my mind, I've for a long time thought, well, man, that had to have come completely out of the blue. She had no idea this could possibly happen, and she's utterly bewildered. But that's not quite true. You see, because Mary came from the lineage of David. And how we teach our children their ABCs from very early on in childhood, if you were of the lineage of David from a very early age, you learned your lineage. You learned your family tree. Because being of the house of David was a big deal. And knowing that they were of the lineage of David, they would also have been very familiar with the prophecy mentioned in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, which says this, And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So while I have to believe that Mary was still completely shocked that it could possibly have been her, she would have known of this prophecy that it would have been a virgin and of the house of David. Well, guess what? She already checks two of the boxes right there. So this would not have been a completely foreign concept to her. We pick back up in verse 36. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. And entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth's was filled with the Holy Ghost, thus fulfilling what was prophesied to Zechariah, that from the womb John would be filled with the Spirit. Verse 42, And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be performed of those things which were told her from the Lord. Talk about a greeting. I mean, she's, she's laying on all these flatteries, if you will, to Mary. But I want you to notice how Mary responds to this. I, I think about if I went into a place, and let's pretend for a moment that I'm Pastor Powell, I am the 
district superintendent of the state of Nebraska. And I walk into a room and they're like, oh, here is the, the superintendent of the state of Nebraska, the Honorable Bishop Myron Powell. Okay, must might feel pretty good to receive, you know, to kind of receive that. Now, Pastor Powell would not be that way because that's not who he is as an individual. Not at all. But I'm trying to imagine this. I like to imagine how these stories are unfolding so it makes sense to me personally. So here is Mary who arrives, who's being called all these things and told that you are the mother of God's child. So how does all this respond? How does she respond to this? Listen, it says, and Mary said, we're in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is done mighty, or he that is mighty, hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and rich and the rich he hath set empty away. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. What a response. Here is a woman who was handpicked by God to give birth to the firstborn legitimate son of God. Notice how I, how I phrase that. The firstborn legitimate son. But when she is greeted with all sorts of flatteries from Elizabeth, she responds by giving all credit and all glory to God. Why? Because she recognized it wasn't about her. The purpose of her promise wasn't actually about her at all. It was to give all glory and all honor to God. Notice in her response, very rarely, maybe two times, she really references herself. Every other thing that she says is in reference to God and what God has accomplished and what God can do and how mighty and holy God is. This is her response to the promise. Verse 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came when, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord has showed great mercy upon her. And they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they called him, or they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. Remember, John, or Zacharias has not told Mary this. She didn't know about this. No one had heard John speak because he had been struck dumb. So when, when Mary or when Elizabeth hears that they try to name him Zacharias after his father, which was very customary, she says, no, his name is going to be called John. Now the people, verse 61, and they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by, that, by his name. Why would you call him John? No one in your family is called John. Where did you randomly pick this name from? Verse 62, and they made signs to his father how he would have called him. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, his name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed. And he spake and praised God. And fear came on all them that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. 
And all that they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with them. So the promise came to pass just as the angel said it would. But for the whole season of waiting, John or Zechariah was struck dumb, was not able to speak and had to wait and only watch for the promise to be fulfilled. It's always important that we respond to God's promises with faith to take the easier road, if you will, um, to see that, that promise fulfilled. The people were all amazed with what God was doing. And excitement was growing about the promise that was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They marveled and wondered, what manner of child shall this be? They were wondering what is going to be the purpose of the promise of, of John. Now I want you to notice what Zechariah prophesies next. Because what we're, what we're discussing here is the purpose of God's promises within our lives. right? So listen to what Zechariah says. Remember, he, his wife had been barren. They were in old age. They had been praying for this. It finally comes to pass. They've received the blessing that they've been looking for. They've received the promise. But listen to what Zechariah prophesies. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been sent since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The purpose of the promise, according to what Zechariah saw for his son, was not to give them social status, was not to make their lives easier by having extra hands around the house. The purpose of the promise was to prepare the way of the Lord, to serve God. John was the fruit of Zechariah and Elizabeth's promise, but his purpose was not to help them earn money. His purpose was not to be a social symbol. His purpose was not to give them, his parents more prominence. No, the purpose of their promise was to prepare the way of the Lord. The purpose of John's life was to advance the kingdom of God. Guess what, church? This is our purpose also. We are not called to salvation so that we can walk around with fancy titles. We were not called to salvation so that we can hope to be elevated to a position of prominence, to a position of status. We were not gifted with different talents so that we could be looked on by society as something great. But we were called to salvation so that we could advance His kingdom. The purpose of our promise is to give it back to God. The purpose of our promise is not to fulfill the American dream. I love our country. I do. I served in the military for our country. I'm proud of the things that I've done for our country. But at the end of the day, this country 
is a way distant last place compared to the kingdom of God. My allegiance always first and foremost must be to God and His kingdom. My citizenship is not of this world. My citizenship is not of this earthly kingdom, but is of God. Therefore, my allegiance can never be split between fulfilling the earthly desires of this world versus fulfilling God's desires for me. My calling, the purpose of my promise, is to advance the kingdom of God. You see, Sarah's son, when, when he was born, was Isaac. He would, was to be the type and shadow of Christ, offered up for a sacrifice on the very mountain that Jesus would later be crucified on. The children of Rebekah and Rachel would give us the twelve tribes of Israel. The wife of Manoah would give birth to Samson. Samson, if you recall the sermon that I preached a while back about him, was not really that great of a person through most of his life. Even though he was called a judge, he did a lot of very arrogant things. But what the story of Samson showed us is that in Samson's final act, in his act of repentance, he was able to advance the kingdom further than he did throughout all of his, the rest of his life prior to that. That story shows us that when we act and live in repentance, we can advance the kingdom much more than when we try to do it on our own, in our own arrogance. So let me wrap all of this up by telling you the end of John's life. As John's ministry grew, so did his influence. I know we like to think of John as a wild, hairy man, wearing camel's fur, out in the wilderness, you know, being all crazy, screaming at people. That's how the world likes to, to paint him. But the truth is, is that he was actually most likely a very pleasant gentleman to be around. He acquired many disciples of his own that, that decided to follow him. If he was out there just yelling at people all the time, he wouldn't have been very popular. Think back to the prophets of the Old Testament, who their job was not to be popular. Their job was to announce judgment upon the people. They often lived in seclusion alone because they weren't popular people. And yet we find that John had his own disciples, his own people that followed after him. He, he, was, he was so popular that when they saw Jesus, some of the people believed that it was John come back to life. That it was John who was dead, but now he came back to life in Jesus. That's how popular John was with some people. He had influence. He sacrificed his entire life pouring into others. He sacrificed luxury and comfort for the cause of Christ. He risked it all for the kingdom. And now here he is at the end of his life. He finds himself in prison facing death. Now as he reflects on all that he's been given and all that he has accomplished, I have to imagine that he has to wonder in his mind, was it all worth it? How will this all unfold? How will all of my life's work, will it, will it have been for something? Will it have really made a difference? He was human, right? And we as human, we have those thoughts. We have those moments of insecurity. We have those times. No matter how spiritual we are, we're still human. So let's look in Luke chapter 7. I'm just going to read four verses for you. Luke chapter 7, verse 19 through 22. Verse 19, it says, And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? 
Now notice, Jesus doesn't immediately respond to them. Instead, Jesus does some things. It says here, And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. We are left to believe that Jesus knew that this answer would be enough to satisfy John. Because you see, John wasn't concerned with his popularity. He wasn't concerned if people were talking about him. What John was concerned with is, is the gospel being preached? John was sent to prepare the way for the king. During the time of kings, a person or a delegation that was sent to prepare the way, what that literally meant was they would go before the king when the king was going to go to a city, and they would clear the road of debris. They would level out the road to make the path as smooth as possible so that the king could arrive at his destination to meet his people. So when John was sent to prepare the way, he was sent to smooth the road, to remove obstacles, so that when the Lord, when the king arrived to his people, they would be ready to receive the word. And this is the answer to the question. What is the purpose of our promise? The gospel isn't about your popularity. And guess what? We are not in competition with other truth-preaching churches. This is not a competition. Can the church of Omaha be more popular than the church in Lincoln or Grand Island or anywhere else? Because the promise isn't about the church of Omaha. The promise is about the kingdom of God. God did not give you talents so that we could pad our resume. We have to stop worrying about whose gift is better. The only thing that matters in this world is that the gospel is being preached and the kingdom of God is being advanced. It doesn't matter who can sing better, who can teach better, who can preach better, who has this gifting versus this gifting, and which, which gifting is better. That is not the purpose of our promise. So church, my challenge to you as we approach the year 2022, that is hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But is our mindset such that we are looking to prepare the way for the Lord? And I mean this in two contexts. I mean, first and foremost, are we preparing the hearts of people through our lifestyle, through our response to them, through how we treat them? Are we preparing their hearts so that the Lord can speak to them? As we have said many, many times, and many preachers have said, you know, we are the only Jesus that some people are going to see. We're the only Bible that some people are going to read. If you respond to someone in hatred and anger, you're adding obstacles to the road for God to speak to them. But when you respond to someone in love and mercy, when you respond with patience and endurance, what you are doing is clearing the way. Little by little, you're removing the stones from that ground so that God can speak to their heart and that that seed can grow. Church, we are called to prepare the way of the Lord. And the second context that this is, is guess what? One of these days, 
the Lord is going to return literally, physically to this earth. And are we doing our part so that when he returns, he finds a people ready for him? Are we doing our part so that when that trumpet blows, the people are ready and listening? Are they watching? Are they hearing the word? Are they ready to receive the king of the world? When I hear that song, Joy to the World, I don't look at it as a Christmas song. To me, it is a return of Christ's song. Because in that song it says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive their king. Well, unfortunately, when Christ came the first time, the world did not receive their king. Much of the world rejected their king. But you see, there's going to be a day when he does return, and those saints of God who are ready are going to be saying, Yes, the king is here. We are ready for the return of the king. But are we doing our part to make others ready for the return of the king also? Let's all stand. Just want to close in a word of prayer. As we go into our next half, as we go into a place of worship, I want you to think about how is it that God wants you to advance the kingdom? What is your role in advancing God's kingdom? Because guess what? Standing behind here is about this much of advancing the kingdom of God. Advancing the kingdom happens outside of the church. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our workplaces. It happens in, in how we treat those who wrong us. That's the most effective way that we advance the kingdom. This is important. You have to hear the word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. I'm not diminishing this, but what I want you to know is you have just as an important, if not more important role in advancing the kingdom than anybody who just stands behind here and preaches a message. Lord, I pray right now that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word Lord, that it would grow in due season, that it would bear fruit. Lord, I pray that you would let us have a mindset that we are sent to prepare the way of the king, of the one true king, O oh God, that you've not called us so that we could earn money, you've not called us so that we can gain social status, but you, you've called us so that we can bring others into the fold, that we can advance the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that we would not live in a spirit of fear in this time, O oh Lord. That we would not be concerned about the news. We would not be concerned about the things happening outside of us. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And it is our job, our purpose, to bring that good news to others. Lord, I pray as we move into this next hour, let there be a spirit of worship to reign in this household. Let there be a spirit of liberty to flow through these, these pews, O oh God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a short break. I'll see you at the second half.